So let me begin with prayer. <clears throat> uh, Heavenly Father, I come to you uh, with humility and trepidation, but I also come with confidence because you are living, you do speak, you've sent your son, you've given us your spirit. And so I thank you that we can stand in confidence that we can hear from you. But I pray that um, you help me to have a clear mind and a clear heart um, to not only speak truth, but to speak with your love. So help me and help all of us to be able to hear what you have for us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So I assume you know what the topic is tonight. The Compromise of Biblical Authority. Uh, my name is Clark Scheibe, if you wonder what my last name is. Uh, Canada. So <clears throat> I'm just going to jump right in. And I'm going to start with a passage in Matthew 4. And this is when Jesus is being led into the wilderness. This is between his baptism and his public ministry. So let me read. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. <clears throat> so there's lots of questions that can occupy our mind. Why would the spirit lead him to be tempted? Um how is Satan talking? How can they be like flying from pinnacle, to, from temple to mountain? And how can he see these things? There's lots of questions I'm not going to be dealing with. I just want us to focus on the use of scripture in this passage. <clears throat> now, remember that he had just been baptized and now he's being prepared for public ministry. And as soon as he begins his public ministry, he is being tempted to be diverted from his mission, diverted from his public ministry. Um, and he's tempted to eat bread instead of using his superpowers, his divine qualities. Instead of calling the angels to assist him immediately, he turns to the Bible. It is written. It's interesting, it is written. He doesn't say, my father said, or I say to you, because in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes, it is written, but I say to you. So he has this authority. But here he's saying it is written or it stands written. So the first thing is just look at the importance, 
that Jesus lays on turning to the Bible every time there's a temptation. In contending against Satan's temptations, he does not use his divine rights. But just like us, in temptations or in cultural confusion, we can say it is written. There's confidence in the reliability and the unchangeability of the scriptures for Jesus and for us. And so the first passage he quotes illuminates his confidence on every word or by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's interesting. He's, it shows that he doesn't limit the parts, every word, by every word, and then comes from the mouth of God. It's not just a casual utterance, but that's something from the inner being of God himself. That's what he sees as the written word. Not this is what my father said to me to tell you but is written. Um, and so he's affirming that it is profitable in its entirety, that the Bible is profitable in its entirety. Now, what's interesting is Satan says, well, if you're going to use scripture, I'm going to use scripture. <laughs> so Satan uses scripture himself. Um, and he says something that is true concerning Jesus. Uh, it shows you that God's word can be used as temptation, it means it can be misused, it can be falsely interpreted. It doesn't stand without interpretation. It can be um, trusted in its reliability, its unchangeability, but it can be falsely interpreted and falsely used. And so Satan is trying to proof text Jesus into the corner. But Jesus uses the old reformational scripture, interprets scripture, and says, but it says you shouldn't tempt the Lord your God. You shouldn't put the Lord your God to test. And so it seems that at, what's happening is that all of Scripture is in play. All of Scripture is in play, and they're combating on what is the Father truly saying? What is God really saying in this moment? And how might I have confidence? Um, but in the end, he's able to defend against Satan by the third time saying, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. So really, I want us to see that in the midst of a spiritual temptation, a spiritual battle, Jesus finds confidence not in his own power, but in the word that God had given him as it had been written. An utter confidence. I don't think I often have that much confidence. But Jesus is saying he does. Now, Francis Schaeffer, Francis and Edith um, Schaeffer uh, founded the work of Labrie in 1955. Uh, and it has been, it has become an international work around the world. Uh, but he, um, just before his death, he had cancer. He fought cancer for six years and he died two months after this work was published. And there's a few times he didn't think he was going to make it. And so he prayed that God would just give him enough strength to finish this one book because he felt it was so important. And so all of prayed that he could just live long enough that he could publish this book. And it was published. And then he was able to die in peace because he considers it one of perhaps my most important work. Uh, he said that it is the culmination of all the other 22 books I've written. It really stands on the previous uh, on the predecessors. Um, and in it, he's really saying, 
that the Bible has been compromised among evangelical Christians, among evangelical churches. He thought that this was the great evangelical disaster because the Bible was the one place where we have a foundation, where we have a hope to not only for ourselves, but to proclaim. And I'm going to be dealing with, with that uh, throughout the whole lecture. What, it, what is he talking about? And I quote from him extensively, uh, but you'll see how it applies. Okay. And that might be some of the most contentious stuff. But here's my outline for the night. I'm going to say that scripture is our only sure foundation uh, in the midst of spiritual battle. Scripture is supernatural, um, that it has divine origin. Uh, scripture over all of life, that it's not just for the religious, but for all areas of life, including history and cosmos, as Schaefer says. And then temptations of compromise. Why would we be tempted to compromise? And how that compromise, that subtle compromise, can weaken biblical authority in the midst of spiritual battle. It's like Jesus trying to limp into the wilderness and not having, but the Bible has been watered down. So how does he, how does he contend with Satan's attacks or confusion or personal questions? And so, and this was really hard on, um, on the heart of Schaefer's. Like, if we compromise the Bible, what power do we have to offer anyone? It's not the church that goes in its power, but it is offering what God has said. This is what's really on Schaefer's mind and heart. Um, and then a renewed call to stand. This is his renew. Um, he wants Christians or evangelicals to take hold uh, um, of a fully authoritative Bible. And it's also my desire for you as well. Uh, just quickly, I should say that when I use the word evangelical, it's called the great evangelical disaster that has been um, really wrapped up into politicalization. That's not how he understood it. There was like the seeds of kind of politicization of being used at the time, but primarily it's just a commitment to say that we believe in the full Bible. Uh, in fact, I should give you just um, fundamentalism in the 20s from Machen on, where it was a response to liberalism or modernism, that there was an attempt to modernize um, our approach to the Bible, to do, um, like it's called higher criticism, to, to move away from the supernatural, to find the agendas, the J-E-D-M-P. And uh, fundamentalism says, no, we have to hold to the fundamentals, to the divinity of Jesus, to the virgin birth, to uh, the atonement and onwards. But fundamentalism started becoming very anti-worldly and angry. Uh, I saw one definition, fundamentalism is, a fundamentalist is si simply an angry evangelical. <laughs> but evangelicalism was originally intended to say, no, we should engage all of culture. The Bible is not just supposed to be about this private faith, but it's supposed to be about the renewal of culture. So that's how he's understanding it. It's more about a commitment to the renewal of culture through the scriptures rather than the politicization that we think of it now. Just so you know, just to clear the air. And there's going to be a, several times I'm going to have to clear the air on what I mean and what I don't mean throughout all this. But let's start scripture as our only sure foundation. <clears throat> but before we 
understand how foundational the Bible is, we also, and Schaefer wants to say, do we really believe that we're in a battle? Is there a true spiritual battle at work? Or is this simply a gentleman's discussion? Here's some quotes. Schaefer says, make no mistake, we as Bible-believing evangelical Christians are locked in a battle. This is not a friendly gentleman's discussion. It is a life or death conflict between the spiritual hosts of wickedness and those who claim the name of Christ. He doesn't hold back. (laughs) And then he also says, the world spirit of our age rolls on and on, claiming to be autonomous and crushing all that we cherish in its path. Sixty years ago, could we have imagined that unborn children would be killed by the millions here in our own country? Or that we would have no freedom of speech when it comes to speaking to God and biblical truth in our public schools? Or that every form of sexual perversion would be promoted by the entertainment media? Or that marriage, raising children, and family life would be objects of attack? Sadly, we must say that very few Christians have understood the battle we are in. Very few have taken a strong and courageous stand against the world spirit of this age as it destroys our culture and the Christian ethos that once shaped our country. This is 1984. (laughs) Now, some people feel that Schaefer was prophetic. And I think that if he were told that, he'd be like, no, the word of God is prophetic. Not me. I'm just repeating mm-hmm. laying it out to all for all to see he continues and uh oh and so what is this spiritual battle that we see among us <clears throat> do we think that there's a spiritual battle um this is where i start offending everybody uh seeing soji one two three the um the teaching of sexual orientation and gender identity or inclusion in uh, the early grades in public elementary schools or the destruction of family through sexual ethics or through economic practices. Uh, Make sure you get your kids into um, daycare as soon as possible so that you can get out and work and make money for the economy. This is what I'm talking about. Uh, Environmental destruction, abortion on demand, gay marriage, Rise of authoritarianism in Western democratic countries like populism from the far right and the left. Uh, Medical assistance in dying, uh, particularly that's euthanasia, particularly as threat on the mentally unhealthy or disabled, the threat of it. Uh, No compassionate use of wealth, corporatism particularly. Political polarization and cancel culture, which goes both ways technological manipulation and invasion of privacy. My son just the other day was saying, dad, what does the Bible say about um, technology and facial recognition technology? (laughs) I was like, I have to think about that one. (laughs) But I love that he asked that question, you know. Social media and lovers of self, anyone who's been taken in by Instagram, by the way, Canadian Library has an Instagram account if you want to check it out. <laughs> Lack of political accountability and media manipulation of news. Are we really in a spiritual battle? Is it real? Or is this a gentleman's discussion or gentle ladies' discussion? 
Now Schaefer was writing in the in 84, but he's looking back from the past 60 years. He often refers throughout the book of the past 60 years and the changes that he'd seen from 24 to 1984. He says, when the memory of the Christian consensus, which gave us freedom within the biblical form, is increasingly forgotten, a manipulating authoritarianism will tend to fill the vacuum. At this point, the words right and left will make little difference. They are only two roads to the same end. The results are the same. An elite, an authoritarianism as such, will gradually force form on society so that it will not go into chaos and most people would accept it. What he's looking at is that really, as people are starting to compromise a, a biblical worldview and giving more over to what he calls humanism, which is this idea of autonomous human freedom, <clears throat> And that will just lead to everyone doing what they want. But if everyone's kind of doing what they want, that will be social chaos. And we will need an authority to come in to force a form, a structure on society so that we're not all at each other's throats. So he's saying what happens without the biblical worldview is that you lose a form of freedom and it ends up in chaos. And then you need political authoritarianism to help you out. So it's either the Bible or political authoritarianism. <laughs> so Schaefer says, do we really believe that we are engaged in this cosmic battle? The primary battle is a spiritual battle in the heavenlies. But this does not mean, therefore, that the battle we are in is otherworldly or outside of human history. It is a real spiritual battle, but it is equally a battle here on earth and in our own country, our own communities, our places of work and our schools, and even our own homes. The spiritual battle has its counterpart in the visible world, in the minds of men and women, and in every area of human culture. In the realm of space and time, the heavenly battle is fought on the stage of human history. In this quote, um, what he's trying to say is that sometimes we talk about spiritual battle, and, we, and we're, trying to find, we're trying to fight the unseen. But he's saying, actually, the spiritual battle is taking place in the seen realm. It's not separate. It's not like there's the um, sacred and this the secular, but that, that the sacred and secular are combined because God has created it all. God created the secular, and therefore, God holds the secular together. And so there is no divide between sacred and secular. Therefore, the spiritual battle is taking place in our homes, in our communities, in our institutions, not just in our behaviors not just in our hearts or spirits. <clears throat> so will this help us? Do we actually have confidence in the midst of this battle that this has anything to say about technological issues um, around or uh, privacy issues around facial recognition? Does it actually have something to tell us? Schaefer refers to Ephesians 6, uh, particularly verse 17. This is where Paul, at the end of the letter that he wrote to some churches in Ephesus, put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the shield of faith. But he says there's only, uh, he goes, um, <coughs> oh, I have it written here. The only offensive weapon mentioned is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The Bible is the only offensive weapon. That doesn't mean that he's saying that we need to go around and 
beat people down. People have had that experience. That's not what he's saying. He's trying to, and so that's why I'm trying to use the word foundation rather than weapon. But he's saying it's a spiritual weapon, meaning it's a foundation. It gives us a place to know things. He goes, without it, we are without hope. Without a strong view of scripture as a foundation, we will not be ready for the hard days to come. It's just going to be echo chambers and yelling at each other online. Without a strong commitment to God's absolutes, the early church could never have remained faithful in the face of the constant Roman harassment and persecution. And our situation today is remarkably similar as our own legal, moral, and social structure is based on an increasingly anti-Christian secularist consensus. And lastly, he says, if we say we believe the Bible to be the inerrant and authoritative, thus saith the Lord, we do not face the howling winds of change, which surround us with confusion and terror. I'll explain the term inerrant later. But for now, he's just saying, if we have this, we don't have to cower. We can have confidence. Just as Jesus, although he was very hungry, he had confidence that God had something to say. And that he could stand on that in the midst of temptation and, and <clears throat> spiritual battle. Now, I want to give you a little caveat. Um, this is another caveat. <clears throat> that what Schaefer doesn't mean is that he's not calling for a Christian nationalism. He's not a dominionist. If we just take the, um, if we just take the Bible and the laws of the land follow just the Mosaic code, like theonomy, then everything will be better. We need to take back the nation for Jesus, and we need a Christian nation. Now, he believes in a Christian consensus, but not Christian nationalism, because he doesn't believe that the Bible ever offers something utopian. He thinks utopia visions bring disaster. So he says, there are many things in this world which grieve us, but we must face them. We never have the luxury of acting in a merely utopian way. Utopian schemes in this fallen world have always brought tragedy. The Bible is never utopian. Politically. Um, and of course, you know, utopia means no place. Um, maybe you don't know that. Utopia means no place. It's like an imaginary place that doesn't exist, but people fight to make it happen. But this idea, he's saying it's not idealistic. It's not like we can change everything. We just need to modify things toward a better human existence for everybody. And so that means uh, he doesn't think that there's any time in the past that is some magical golden age, the halcyon days. I wish we could just get back to the halcyon days. There is no golden age in the past, which we can idealize, whether it is the with, with, whether it is early America, the Reformation, or the early church. And those are all three things that he really admires. But until recent decades, something did exist, which can rightly be called a Christian consensus or ethos, which gave a distinctive shape to Western society and to the United States in a definitive way. Now that consensus is all but gone, and the freedoms that it brought are being destroyed before our eyes. We are at a time when humanism is coming to its natural conclusion in morals, in values, and in law. 
All that society has today are relativistic values based on statistical averages or the arbitrary decisions of those who hold legal and political power. That's where we are. Now, he says that there was a consensus and it says there was no idealized past, no golden age, um, whether it's early America. Even in <clears throat> when America had Christian consensus, he says Christians failed terribly. There was race-based slavery, non-compassionate use of wealth, and hyper-nationalism, particularly manifest destiny. He's saying as Christians, it wasn't fully Christian, but it did have a basis and people argued and disagreed upon this basis, but we weren't fully Christian. So he wants, he, he, so the Bible's not utopian. He's not nationalistic. The, even the consensus fell short, but that's no reason to think that the biblical worldview isn't a framework in which things are better. Um, in fact, we need a high view of scripture in order to have a high view of humanity. <clears throat> so if we're, if this is what we're going to, <clears throat> is, do we really believe there's a spiritual battle? Scripture has to be our only foundation. But if it's our only foundation, it has to have divine origin. Mm -hmm. It has to have divine power. And this is exactly how scripture understands itself. All um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the messenger of God may be complete, equipped in for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. That sometimes you see the word inspired, but so many people have um, confused the idea of inspiration as artistic genius. But the word is theonoustos, which means God um, breathed out. So just as God brought creation forth, God brought his scriptures forth. That's what's being said. Um, and it doesn't say uh, several of them. It says all scripture as a whole. Um, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, look at how it says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Scripture preached the gospel by saying, in you, all the nations. That is God speaking. There's, there's a complete uh, parallel between God says, the Bible says. Romans 9, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is Yahweh speaking to Moses, the words he needs to say to Pharaoh. So when it says, Scripture says, it's actually the Lord says. There was such an identification of the people to see that what Scripture says, God says. And then uh, there's many, many verses. I'm just showing you four uh, or uh, in relation to the Old Testament and then some for the New Testament. Acts 1, verse 16. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. 
So in a sense, there, there's the human element there. But saying David wrote this about Judas, but it, by, was by the power of the Spirit who was speaking. David spoke it, but it was by the, the Spirit's power and the Spirit's leading. So the Spirit spoke, mouth, David mouthed the words, as it were. And the New Testament sees itself as, uh, as divine. Uh, in John 4, um, 14, verse 6, I mean, uh, Jesus says to the disciples, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you um, to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, they know that the Spirit is the one who inspires or breathes out scriptures. So they know that that Spirit is going to dwell on them to give them the message. And continually, uh, and so they, they associated word, the word word with God's word, God's breathing, God's speaking. So they constantly refer to the word of God, the word of the Lord, the word of Christ, the word of the cross, and on and on. Sometimes even just the word. Then lastly, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. And Peter is writing uh, to early church. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a, to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Wow, those are strong words. The Bible is saying and it's proclaiming and understanding itself as God's word. <clears throat> I don't know if any of you are getting a little <laughs> itchy. So let me explain the word inerrancy, okay? Because this has some bad rap. But I don't want you to reject it for the wrong reasons. I want you to reject it for the right reasons. I don't want you to reject it, but I'm saying if you reject it, <laughs> reject it for the right reasons, not because of its misuse or misunderstanding. It's a difficult doctrine, but I want us to understand what it means. And, and uh, it's often synonymous with infallible. I like the word fully authoritative. But inerrancy is trying to really not give you wiggle room. But sometimes people feel too constrained. So let me explain what inerrancy is. It does not mean strictly literal interpretation, as if there's only one possible meaning in a text. It is not to be mechanistic. Biblical history is represented through literary it's not as if there's like a, a recorder and it records journalistically, but that there is a literary representation of historical events. It, it takes out the ums and ahs, as it were. It does not mean inerrant interpretation, as sometimes people think it means. Mm -hmm. You can have an inerrant Bible, but people all get it wrong. It does not mean that all Christian interpretation must agree. You know, I said in the first one, there's not always just one possible meaning. Denominational differences and Christian freedoms can exist amongst faithful interpreters. Uh, can someone dance or drink alcohol? How should we meet as a church? Um, 
Um, and then we can get in, in even into trickier areas of like, should, should women be leaders in uh, churches? Um, and then we'll get into the even trickier ones later. But just the denominational differences are allowable as people say, I believe the Bible to be fully authoritative, fully inerrant, but I disagree on how this is interpreted. And denominations separate over it, but they don't necessarily separate their bond in Christ. Um, that is something that we'll be dealing with later. It does not mean application is simple. Doesn't mean if someone's struggling, you can just quote a verse at them. You know, Julie and I struggled um, having children for seven years. And I remember getting a word from someone that we didn't even know and said um, that God had meant it for our good, that this wouldn't happen. I was like, well, okay, I, I think this is maybe, but I think you're misusing it. And it was really hurtful. Uh, so application is not simple. People's lives are complicated. Choices are complicated. It's not simple. It does not mean that written mistakes did not occur in transmission. There's lots of texts that you can find. And that's where people will try to find texts and fragments and put them together. Uh, inerrancy doesn't mean that there aren't written mistakes, that, um, that there were no written mistakes that did not occur. Did I say that right? <laughs> It does not mean that written mistakes did not occur in transmission. <laughs> I said it right when I'm writing it, the written word. However, we can have utmost confidence that the texts we do have happen preserved faithfully. Uh, there's been, it's, it's the most attested ancient document by far. 97 point something agreement. And most of those small mistakes are kind of like there, T-H-R-E-I-R um, or T-H-E-R-E. -E. You're like, obviously, that was a mistake, right? So a lot of those are those kind of mistakes. There's only just a few, like five, that you can think, okay, what's really going on? Okay. Uh, now, inerrancy, what it does mean that every word and statement in the original writings are from God. That is, God is the primary author of Scripture. It, inerrancy does include the human element, since God speaks through his messengers. Therefore, an understanding of culture, genre, historical circumstances, and expression remain important to faithful interpretation. But what inerrancy does not mean is that the scriptures contain the word of God, if that means there is true spiritual meaning despite false or mistaken beliefs of the authors. We're going to get into that more later. It means that what the authors wrote is the very word of God. <clears throat> so do you understand that last sentence contains the word of God does not doesn't just contain the word of God because some people would say, well, there's mistakes. Uh, they had false beliefs, but you know, you can kind of get the meaning, you, you know, they had ancient superstitions. Or... Okay. I'm just going to trust that you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> Jay Packer gives a great definition of inerrancy in this uh, from his book, fundamentalism in the word of God. 
God's word is affirmed to be infallible because God himself is infallible. The infallibility of scripture is simply the infallibility of God speaking. What scripture says is to be received as the infallible word of the infallible God. And to assert biblical inerrancy and infallibility is just to confess faith in one, the divine origin of the Bible, and two, the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God. The value of these terms is that they can serve the principle of biblical authority. For statements that are not absolutely true and reliable could not be absolutely authoritative. So inerrancy, or this being of divine origin and divine sustenance or sustaining power, whatever that right word is, is that it gives us confidence. If this is compromised, how can we have confidence? But if this is God's word, as the Bible understands itself, then we can say, actually, God has something to say. It's not just opinion. Now, I may not understand what he's saying. Just as a disciple not understanding the cryptic words of Jesus, we don't always fully understand. It can be complex and complicated and confusing, but at least I can have confidence that it's there, that there's something there. He is there and he is not silent. <clears throat> but Schaefer wants to make sure that we understand that it being the foundation given to us by God, it's not just for religious life. It's not just for our spiritual well-being. It's actually for all areas of society. It's over all of our life, over our minds, our pocketbooks, our politics, our institutions, our academics. The Bible gives us a framework for all of that. Um, otherwise, it's not a very powerful foundation. So he says, the Bible is the weapon which enables us to join with our Lord on the offensive in defeating the spiritual hosts of wickedness. But it must be the Bible as the word of God in everything it teaches, in matters of salvation, but just as much where it speaks of history and science and morality. The issue is whether the Bible gives propositional truth, where it touches history and the cosmos, and this all the way back to pre-Abrahamic history, all the way back to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We'll talk about that in a minute. Or whether instead of that, it is only meaningful where it touches that which is considered religious. <clears throat> now, he's saying that the Bible gives us true truth. That's what he liked to say. But he said Continually, the Bible does not give us exhaustive knowledge, but it gives us sufficient knowledge, a sufficient framework in which to understand everything in society, how we're supposed to think economically, politically, agriculturally, sexually. And this really brings it, uh, it really helps you understand how he really wants to show the Bible is applying even to our very minds and our very hearts. He says, when the scripture speaks of man being foolish in this way, it does not mean he is only foolish religiously. This is uh, in Romans where Paul says their, their minds are darkened, their hearts are foolish. He's saying um, it's not that they're just foolish as like Christians or religiously. 
Rather, it means that he has accepted a position that is intellectually foolish, not only with regard to what the Bible says, but also to what exists concerning the universe in its form and what it means to be human. Uh, this is how he simplifies it, is that the Bible helps us understand the creator is helping us understand his creation. It helps us understand the form of the universe, and it helps us to understand what it means to be human. In turning away from God and the truth which he, which he has given, man has thus become foolishly foolish in regard to what man is and what the universe is. Man is left with a position with which he cannot live, and he is caught in a multitude of intellectual and personal tensions. What he's saying is that God created reality, and he's given us a word in which to understand how to live in that reality. But if we don't live in that reality, we're going to, uh, we're trying to be a square going into a round hole. Is that we're going to be bumping up against the edges. And so what that means societally is that there can be disrespect for human life. There can be disrespect for creation. And then we start suffering pollution and these things. He's saying that the creator has given us a framework to know how to live. And if we don't live in that reality, then we're going to be bound up in tensions, having a crisis of identity, a crisis of meaning, a crisis of action. The Bible offers true freedom with form. Remember, not authoritarianism, but biblical form. The Bible offers true freedom with form and a way of life which meets the deepest human needs. The Bible gives not just moral limits, but absolutes and truth in regard to the whole spectrum of life. And so he says, actually, a high view of scripture goes hand in hand with a high view of human humanity. But a low view of scripture goes hand in hand with a low view of humanity. He says, if we don't trust the Bible, then society will ultimately become anti-human. And if we hold it as infallible, then humanity prospers. And so now he's wanting to say not just something we believe, but something we proclaim out in society. We hold our distinctives because we are convinced that they are biblical. But God's call is to love and be one with all those who are in Christ Jesus, and then to let God's truth speak into the whole spectrum of life and the whole spectrum of society. That is our calling. If we don't understand this, this call to be into all of life, we understand neither how rich Christianity is and God's truth is, nor do we understand how wide is the call placed upon the Christian in the totality of life. Jesus cannot be said to be Savior unless we also say he is Lord. And we cannot honestly and rightly say he is our Lord if he is only a Lord of part of life and not of the totality of life, including all the social and political and cultural life. What he's saying is that we can't just go to church and call on God as our Savior and him not change how we think about money, how we think about our sexuality, how we think about our relationships and our family, about society. This is what it means to make Jesus Lord. And so what he's really trying to do here, he's trying to speak against that fundamentalism that is anti-worldly. He's like, no, the Christian should love culture. He's not against culture. He's like, um, and so here, what he's trying to say is 
culture has been corrupted and we need to renew it because God has created culture to be good. How can we be artists and economists and teachers in a way that um, brings life and humanity to the world? And so if this is at all compromised, um, you know, how is, if this is for all of life in the battle, how are we going to go forward? He's saying, if this is true, not just religiously, but in all areas of life, then it can sustain us against the radical rebellion, against the relativism and the syncretism, which are the hallmark of our own day, whether that's expressed in secular words or even religious words, including evangelical words. Because you can go to an evangelical church and hear lots of evangelical words, but they may be no different than the relativism that is all around us. And if it's, com if it's compromised in any of these areas, as unhappily happening today among many who call themselves evangelicals, we destroy the power of the word and put ourselves in the hands of the enemy. He's saying that we're conceding to Satan. We're conceding to corruption. We're conceding to a low view of humanity. So why in the world would we ever want to compromise that? Why would we ever be tempted to give up on that? Well, let me just give you a few. <laughs> Miracles. That's hard to believe. Scientific findings. Comparative religious texts and stories. Differing biblical accounts, like the four gospel accounts, for instance. Apparent ethical contradictions. Uh, the law and uh, freedom, or Canaan and Jesus. Church splits. You ever been through a church split? <laughs> Misuse, hypocrisy, and false interpretations. Cultural pressures and personal preference. I'm going to go back over these in a second. But what I wanted to do before I gave you more kind of examples of this is that this happens to every Christian. All Christians have hard time thinking, what do I do about miracles? Because I don't see them. Or if I do, it's very rare. And it seemed to be happening a lot for Jesus. Axe heads floating in the water. Scientific findings. Um, all this is what are we to do when they come in conflict with what the word says, with what we feel, with what we think, with what we have experienced? Well, the important part is, and this is really what I want to emphasize, is our presuppositions. What are our presuppositions toward the text as we deal with these conflicts? Do we continue to trust that God is speaking and we need to figure out how to work around that? Or are we going to say, oh, well, maybe there's an easier, more natural explanation that is human agenda, that is a human work. It's not scripture says God says. Scripture says what people think God says. So, so it's really having to do with this presupposition. Now, before I go into some examples there, is uh, Schaefer talks about the watershed. 
Now, the watershed is where you have this water going down the line. You see the watershed ridge. It's behind this word. Uh, and the waters go down. Okay. But Schaefer says that in the area that he's in, there's he goes to a ridge where he would walk on his path in Switzerland. And there's snow and there's a watershed on each side. There's a watershed on each side. And he says the snow looks like it's in an apparent unity. But when the snow melts, if it goes down one side of the ridge, it goes down into uh, the Rhine River and ends up in the North Sea. But if the snow melts on the other side of the ridge, it goes down into the Rhone River and ends into the Mediterranean. He goes in the same water that was right on the same little point, end up thousands of miles apart. And he says, as evangelicals, we have small little concessions, small little concessions, these conflicts. And we're like, well, maybe the Bible isn't all that it says. And we make a small concession. He goes, it can lead you to a place that you never thought you could imagine. So here are some examples. Miracles. So these are the small concessions that kind of like that makes you go onto the other ridge. Miracles that can't happen. Maybe it was just epilepsy and Jesus was calmed him down. It was simply an ancient superstition. <clears throat> Scientific findings. DNA shows that we're 90%, 97% chimpanzee. Genesis 2 is pure myth. Comparative religious texts or stories. Well, you know, the writer just borrowed from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is older, and simply added his Israelite faith to it. This is what you especially get with higher criticism. J arguing with E and D and P, and they're all arguing, but wow, the Bible somehow comes together, cobbled together, and contains the word of God. Right? Different biblical accounts. The biblical stories were not concerned with accuracy. They're ancient and the way they saw the world was not only just different, it was mistaken. Apparent ethical contradictions, well, Jesus would be against the violent occupation of Canaan. Anyone getting uncomfortable here? <laughs> Church splits. Christians continually disagree and fight each other. True interpretation isn't possible. Misuse, hypocrisy, and false interpretations, race-based slavery, the allowance of spousal, spousal abuse, the doctrine of discovery, the doctrine that the, that the, the church, the Catholic church gave to give permission to Christians if they go into a land and they find only pagans, that they have the, uh, they have the freedom in Christ to kill and take over. That's why, that's why many indigenous people died in the land that we're on. Cultural pressures, bigot, fundamentalist, homophobe. Who wants to be a homophobe, right? Personal preference. God just wants me to be happy. As long as I'm loving other people, that's the main point. I hope we're all uncomfortable at this point. You know, that personal preference and the cultural pressures, uh, Schaefer said, he called it blue gene mentality. Uh, he says it's so easy to be a radical in the wearing of blue jeans when it fits in with the general climate of wearing blue jeans. 
He's like, people don't want to rock the boat. Can you say it again? It's so easy. No problem. It's so easy to be a radical in the wearing of blue jeans when it fits in with the general climate of wearing blue jeans. It's like, I'm so radical. I'm just wearing blue jeans, just like 30 other people. It's like buying a shirt that says, you know, radical. Then everyone has radical shirts. Um, <clears throat> so these small concessions, these small concessions can actually lead us into surprising places. And I'm going to give you three that I've heard multiple times. I'm going to be paraphrasing them. Okay. Jesus did not feed 5,000 people. The miracle was how he transformed their selfish hearts toward one of generosity, where each person gave food from their own pockets, just as the boy did, so much so that there were baskets of leftovers. I heard that in a sermon. I've seen that in commentaries. Which makes you think, could Jesus really read minds? Could he really read the inner thoughts of people? Because it's being recorded to us. The Canaanite wars were um, considered sanctioned by God because he promised his people a land. However, it got mixed into Israelite nationalism and tribal warfare. Jesus showed how God would never have called for such violence. Rather, God is love. How do we deal with that conflict? It's a real conflict. These are real conflicts. Okay. Homosexuality was so tied up with pagan idolatry, Paul, as a first century Jew, could not see that it could be allowed and even affirmed by God, especially if in a monogamous marriage. God must have heard this one. Right? Um, <clears throat> so sometimes we make these small concessions like, well, maybe the Bible isn't all that it says, and then it can lead to different areas. Now, I'm assuming that some of you, and I know, in fact, some of you hold these ideas, or at least one of them. Okay. <clears throat> so we're going to look at Genesis 1 through 11. Because, are you looking at the time? <laughs> <laughs> If we only had some wine, we could just like stay longer. Okay. Um, so Genesis 1 through 11, I really want to focus on this is because this is where a lot of the present battle is today. Martin Luther says, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of God, except... Precisely, um, sorry, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the same moment attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. So what he's saying there is, I might be telling you all the Bible, and I believe it all to be true, and I'm telling you everything, but I'm just kind of skating around these five verses. But if that's the point where people are attacking, no matter how boldly, if I'm not if I'm boldly speaking Jesus, but I'm not in the battle there, then I'm not confessing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. 
And to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. It's like being in a battle. And we're like, we're all going in that way. It's like, well, someone has to make coffee. You know? <laughs> that would be me. But Genesis 1 through 11 is very confusing. Okay. And we're going to deal with that. But think about how important it is. It speaks of gender, of sexuality, of marriage and family, environmental stewardship, human dignity as made in the image of God, the cultural mandate to take care and steward the world, an ordered universe where science is possible and rationality makes sense. God is transcendent and imminent, his relationship, sin, dominion turned to nom um, domination, Creation subjected to, feel, um, to futility. Why are we experiencing confusion and environmental crisis? Has it always been this way? Shame. Why do we feel shame? Human death. Is human death a part of the world or is it something that was brought about? In the promise of the gospel. All these issues and many more are happening in Genesis 1 through 11. In fact, Genesis 1 through 3. Wow, that's difficult. By the way, I'm just giving you all these things. I'm not going to work out all these things. You know, I've mentioned so many, but these are all the points that were, um, Labrie has lots of lectures on all those other ones, the miracles and personal preference and uh, ancient mythologies and on and on. Those are all talks in and of themselves. But like I said, it's about the presuppositions that we have bringing to the text. Bringing to um, and what? How does that impact our faith? But I really want to deal with Genesis one through eleven because I've seen it really impact students and academic debates and what people are saying. Now, remember, Jesus used scripture to interpret scripture, and if we only had Genesis one through eleven without it ever being mentioned, it would be a lot easier. <laughs> But in Mark 10, verses 6 through 9, Jesus refers to the first couple. You know, what God put together, let no one take apart in his dealing with divorce questions. Luke 3, verse 38, genealogy of Jesus, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Luke 11, verses 50 through 51, Jesus on the blood of Abel. Luke 17, verses 26 through 27, Jesus on Noah and future judgment. Acts 17, verses 24 through 27, Paul on creation and human origin. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, creation of the world. Romans 5, verse 12, sin and death by one man, so Adam. Romans 8, verses 19 through 22, creation is subjected to futility. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in Adam death, in Christ life. In 2 Corinthians 11, the serpent deceived Eve. In 1 Timothy 2, Adam and Eve are mentioned. 1 Peter first, um, chapter 3, Noah and the flood are mentioned. 2 Peter verses 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Earth formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Whew. Doesn't give a lot of room. In 1 John chapter 3, Cain as murderer. Wow. Seems that the New Testament is taking Genesis 1 through 11 as historical. That's difficult for us, isn't it? How are we to think about that? In fact, the hardest parts are Mark 10, Jesus referring to the first couple as an original couple of God's design. 
And then Paul in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about sin coming through one man and therefore death. And Jesus came in order to give us life. So Christ is seen as historical. In Paul's mind, Adam is historical. So what are we to do with this conflict we feel? Well, uh, a Christian man, Dr. Francis Collins, he was put on the human genome um, board. Like he was the head of the human genome project. And through his study and trust of um, the ordered universe, he came to the understanding that humanity is very old, that modern humans are at least 200,000 years old. And not only that, is that the DNA, even like uh, the pseudogenes and these, uh, these genes that show sickness that falls on humanity, also falls on chimpanzees. And that they all, it's like not just a random event of like we all got the flu at the same time, but like hundreds on our DNA, which is encoded. And he's saying we can see that evolution is true and that we are related to chimpanzees. And that, and as a Christian, I'm saying God designed it that way. Okay. So this is the science of the day. Okay. It's very important science. And I encourage you to read the book. Uh, some of it's science and some of it's, and a lot of it's not, but uh, some of it's legitimate science. Well, influenced by Francis Collins, um, and by the way, I'm going to say this about the next few people, and I guess all the people I speak of from this, I do not doubt their Christian commitment. I do not doubt their sincerity. I do not doubt their rationality. Okay. I'm just saying he's put out there a conflict for us to figure out how do we resolve this? And how do we deal with this with our presuppositions? Well, there's two people, Dennis Lamaru, he's from Alberta, he's world famous, and then also um, Peter Enns, who you may know. I'm just going to look at their two books dealing with this issue. So Dennis Lamaru says, and since, and he went to Regent College years and years ago, and since ancient science does not align with physical reality, it follows that Adam never existed. Um, this is in four views on the historical Adam. He also says, Holy Scripture makes statements about how God created the heavens that, in fact, never happened. Holy Scripture makes statements about how God created living, living organisms that, in fact, never happened. Did the Apostle Paul believe that Adam was a real person? Yes, absolutely. Paul was a first century Jew. He accepted the historicity of Adam, which he says, but Adam never existed, right? Since Paul accepted an ancient biology of the origin of life, it is only consistent that he also accepted an ancient understanding of the origin of death, suffering, and decay. Therefore, in the same way that scripture does not reveal how God actually created life, the Bible does not reveal the origin of biological death. So what about Jesus when he's quoting Genesis and talking about Adam? Well, Jesus was accommodating to the Jewish belief of the day that Adam was a real person. Okay? Paul was mistaken. Jesus was accommodating. 
And so what Dennis Lamoureux wants to do is he calls it the message incident principle. And this is how he makes the statement. We believe that the main purpose of the Bible is to reveal inerrant, life-changing spiritual truths. When referring to nature, the Holy Spirit in the revelatory process allowed the use of an incidental ancient science. Rather than confusing the biblical writers and their readers with modern scientific concepts, like DNA, God accommodated. This was the best science of the day as conceived from an ancient feminological perspective. Sorry, when it says ancient science, are you just talking about stories? No, as, uh, and I'll mention it later, but a three-tiered universe that that um, that there was a, a firmament that was hammered out, and they believed that if you go outside and look at the blue sky, then you assume that the waters are being held, and it stands on pillars, and that there's, and that the waters are allowed to come through. And so they base, um He's saying that the way that the ancient people saw the world and described it is how they literally thought it worked. And this is how the Genesis account is. And he's like, but God revealed his inerrant truth. The Holy Spirit does not lie, Lamarou says, but he does it by conceding, by concession, by accommodation through an ancient understanding. Um, <clears throat> qualifying ancient science as incidental, in quotes, does not imply that it is unimportant. The science in scripture is vital for delivering spiritual truths. Um, I don't know if I have it written somewhere else, but um, what you can think here is that, uh, I'll go ahead and I'll say it later. Okay, so here's Peter Enns in his book, The Evolution of Adam. As I see it, the scientific evidence we have for human origins and the literary evidence we have for the nature of ancient stories of origins are so overwhelmingly persuasive that belief in a first human, such as Paul understood him, is not a viable option. The way forward, I believe, is to recognize the profound historical, not simply symbolic truths, in Paul's words that remain despite his view of human origins. He's saying Paul was wrong about human origins, but we still are allowed to keep the resurrection. Just because Paul had an ancient view of science in the world doesn't mean that we can't know truth about Jesus, his death and resurrection. Admitting the historical, this is still ends, admitting the historical and scientific problems with Paul's Adam does not mean in the least that the gospel message is therefore undermined. A literal Adam may not be the first man in cause of sin and death, as Paul understood it, but what remains of Paul's theology are three core elements of the gospel. The universal and self-evident problem of death, the universal and self-evident problem of sin, the historical event of the death and resurrection of Christ. So what he's saying there is, okay, Adam had an ancient worldview. And so he thought that the Bible was right, but it was an ancient worldview that he shared, and therefore he believed it, but Adam never existed. He never sinned the way that we think. But the reason it is true is that we can see sin all around us, and people die all around us. And so it's evident that it's true 
not because it's historical, but because it's observable. But he does believe in the historical event of the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, <clears throat> I don't think I have it elsewhere. So it's kind of like this uh, accommodating. So someone says, it's like explaining to your children. Can you tell me about the birds and the bees? Can you tell me about sex? And he's like, and one person uh, in talking about ends was like, well, it's one accommodation to say, you know, the storks bring babies. It's another thing to say a little bit of mom and a little bit of dad is how God designed babies to be born. Well, that is a simplified end. And, this, and it was a woman who wrote that and said, and my child never asked more questions. That makes enough sense to them, right? It's not false science. It's just simplified science. She goes, that would be an accommodation. The other is falsehood. Mm -hmm. It's just wrong. And so if they're wrong in their observation, how can they be right about something else? Um, <clears throat> and Lamoureux feels this tension. He goes, being accused of picking and choosing the Bible verses I prefer is a serious charge. But let's again consider Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. The inerrant message of faith asserts that Jesus is Lord over the entire creation. Am I picking and choosing when I embrace this inerrant spiritual truth and decide not to accept reference to the three-tier universe? Yes, I am. But once my critics become aware of the ancient astronomy in this passage, they will do so as well, because I doubt anyone today believes the world is really made up of three tiers. Okay. He's like, that's what Paul believes. So are you saying that we're supposed to believe in the three-tier universe? You know, Luther made claim on these kind of things. He's like, is this what we're supposed to do? Um, <clears throat> now, you can ask me later, but there are other people who do hold to old earth or evolutionary theory and try to reconcile it to the historicity of the Genesis account. Um, but they will say that Paul in... And you can ask me how they try to do that, but they're still trying to reconcile. But the presupposition I'm questioning is Lamaru and Inns conceding and saying they're allowing the naturalistic presuppositions and not allowing supernatural explanations. Mm -hmm. If God can raise the dead, can he help people understand the truth? And is it is it too easy to try to say it's a three-tier universe or that Adam never existed? Um you know, I guess I'll deal with it real quick. Uh, hold on. I don't want you to see all that. Uh, <laughs> you're like, whoa. Um, Francis Schaeffer, when he, he wrote a book called No Final Conflict, and he's wrestling with Genesis and also Genesis in space and time, dealing with the first 11 chapters and with the creation account. What's interesting is that he takes science seriously, rationality seriously, um, but he also says there could be supernatural explanations. What about the fall of Satan? Is that a viable explanation? It seems to be a viable explanation within scripture. Why is it not a viable explanation as we describe and try to understand scripture? Um, he also says that the Bible does not give us exhaustive knowledge. 
And we can see that the Genesis account, he says, where it touches down, it's true, but we may not see the cause or the process of it all. So he believes that Adam is historical, Eve is historical. But how that all works out, he says, well, it has to be historical because that's what God says in Genesis, and that's what is repeated through Jesus, and that's what repeated repeated in throughout the whole scriptures. And so just working on the presupposition is like, okay, this is complex. I don't know how it all works out, but I'm just going to make possible suggestions. So Schaefer's quite humble in this. And some people who take inerrancy, uh, take Genesis 1 through 11, they want to beat people with the head, sadly. And they're saying, okay, if you, do, if you disagree on every single point, then you're not a Christian. You've lost all biblical authority. But what Schaefer's doing is saying, no, we just need to be open to supernatural explanations as easily as naturalistic explanations and trust that what the Bible says, God says, and wrestle with that. But we can go back to that later. But if you make these small little concessions, it goes onto the other side and ends in the North Sea or ends in the Mediterranean. So here are some examples. Uh, the first one I want to give is the liturgist. Have you ever listened to the liturgist podcast? I used to listen to it quite often. Uh, Michael Gunger. He makes beautiful things. Uh, lovely musician. I'm not going to sing anymore. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> but he and a guy named Science Mike and later on Rachel Held Evans really were like the trio. And they were really frustrated and disgusted with evangelical churches, big churches. They were really burnt by churches. And for good reason. I, I mean, I'm saying that I, I sympathize with their feeling burnt and angry. But what was really critical in them leaving was not just being hurt, but finding grounds within scientific explanations that said, oh, Genesis is just a myth. Now I can work it through all the science. And Science Mike is like, I can explain all this scientifically. And the Bible can just kind of like tell us it's, it's beautiful stories. It's very important stories but not telling us scientific stories or historical stories. You see what I mean? Well, that's where it started, but then it led into paths that they did not expect. I didn't even expect. Um, and there's been lots of controversy. And now like Michael Gunger recently said that uh, Buddha and Muhammad are Christ, um, that there's like equality there. And so it's just this small little anger with the evangelical church, finding this little concession around science to give you more room to, and you're kind of a free thinking Christian now, but then it can lead to a place where you didn't expect. Uh, evangelical churches, um, uh, a church that Julie and I formerly attended has just become an affirming church of, of LGBTQ. And, and what I mean by that, I want to be clear about what I mean by that is that it is affirming the blessing of gay marriage and the full inclusion of, um, of people with same-sex attraction uh, that have no need to be celibate. So, uh, now, this does not mean that gay people, that evangelical churches that are not affirming are not welcoming. But I know that this is a tension, right? But... but uh, and what I've seen is that people who take evolutionary theory in the Bible as allegory or mythological do not always end in these spaces. But everyone who's end in these spaces 
have always found their beginning in the compromise of Genesis. There's a common acceptance of, or at least indifference toward abortion and medical assistance in dying. It's very difficult and contentious to talk about. Uh, I saw lots of seminary students around me and many people have come here, uh, really uh, evangelical liberation theology. This is using, is conflating the gospel with Marxist uh, interpretation of social structures conflating the kingdom of God with a social program. Uh, Rob Bell, evangelical universalism. I've spoken on this. <clears throat> uh, easy divorce or promiscuity among singles. Now, you might be thinking I'm, I'm going at a certain direction. <laughs> I want you to show that. I'm trying to hurt everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> Schaefer was very much against personal peace and affluence. He felt of the middle class. He's like Christians who have been blessed by the biblical worldview have basically taken their money for themselves and personal happiness to the new, to a new extreme. And that church is about their material blessing and their therapeutic happiness. Yeah. You see that in conservative churches, right? Environmental indifference or exploitation. American far-right nationalism and new left deconstructive progressivism. So um, <clears throat> what Schaefer says, he said, um, <clears throat> so Schaefer aligned himself, this is a little caveat, with figures that became the moral majority because in his fight against abortion, because he was for all of life, not just for the life of the unborn, but he even called churches, if you're going to fight abortion, you need to start saving money and adopting and figuring out how to do social systems so that you can raise these children. He goes, if you don't do that, then you're not really fighting. Um, <clears throat> but he aligned himself with these figures that became very politicized which is why we see evangelicalism as so political. Um, but he disagreed with their tactics and their nationalism. He said in this book, the proper, there's a proper need for Christians to stand against tyranny from whatever side it might come, right or left. He was not conservative or liberal. He wanted to hold under the word of God. He wrote a book on environmentalism. Right? He, wrote, he wrote continuously about compassionate use of wealth for the poor. He wrote saying that the churches have been racist. So he's not just this fundamentalist conservative. He's trying to stand under the full word of God for all of life. He goes, but these little concessions just lead to accommodation, which leads to accommodation, which leads to accommodation. In the last few years, the situation has moved from hanging on to the value system, the meaning system and the religious things while saying that what the Bible affirms in regard to history and the cosmos is culturally oriented. Okay? Meaning is important, but history and science is culturally oriented. But that's led to the further step of still trying to hold on to the value system and the meaning system and the religious things, but now lumping them together, these moral commands, along with the things of history and cosmos, as culturally oriented. There is no end to this. So what he's saying is that if, if, your, science, if your history and your Science becomes culturally oriented, so does your morality. 
That's what Paul would have thought. If his view of the ancient of his ancient scientific world, then why, why should we trust his moral view? The Bible is made to say only that which echoes the surrounding culture at our moment of history. The Bible is bent to the culture instead of the Bible judging our society and culture. So if we compromise, make these little concessions, then the Bible no, lo no longer is God's word, but basically our feeling of sacredness for our cultural values. We are bombarded with the philosophy of moral relativism, subjective experience, and the denial of objective truth. In the new view of scripture among evangelicals, we find the same thing, namely that the Bible is not objective truth, that in the area of what is verifiable, it has many mistakes in it, that where it touches on history and the cosmos, it cannot be trusted, and that even what it teaches concerning morality is culturally conditioned and cannot be accepted in an absolute sense. But nevertheless, this new weakened view stresses that a religious word somehow breaks through from the Bible, which finally ends in some expression such as an inner feeling, an inner response, or an inner witness. Mm -hmm. We had a, a, a vineyard pastor come and lecture for us, and he was lecturing on Hans Goddard. I was like, yes, a Pentecostal, like charismatic guy who wants to talk about philosophy and the philosophy of history, Hans Goddard. And he gave this lecture, and I was like, oh, that was really heavy and high. And then someone was asking him as a pastor who was intelligent and said, but how can I have confidence that God says what he says, that God is who he is? And he said, well, you probably just do what I need to, what I do is I just remember that one experience I had with Jesus, that warm experience. And I just keep trying to remember it. That inner witness, that one moment is what he was holding on to. And that woman felt that she received nothing. She had no confidence. And Schaefer's like, if we compromise the Bible, people are going to come to us asking for their deepest needs, their deepest questions. And all we're giving them is a handful of pebbles. But the Bible in its full authority gives us life and transformation. So why should we become just like the culture? So we have a renewed call to stand. And this is my final section. <clears throat> There's three options, Schaefer says. No confrontation, hateful confrontation, loving confrontation. No confrontation. Uh, for Schaefer, he was seeing evangelical leaders saying, hey, we should join the World Council of Churches. Um, and But Schaefer's like, well, there's a lot of people in the World Council of Churches that are very liberal and they don't believe the Bible to be fully true or even true. So why would we join up? And they're like, well, we can grow. Like at least Christians are standing together in solidarity. As Christians declining, shouldn't Christians come together and to say, hey, we disagree, but we support each other. Hmm. But he said there is no use of evangelicalism seeming to get larger and larger if at the same time appreciable parts of evangelicalism are getting soft concerning the scriptures. Um, what he's saying that if you accommodate on scripture and we stand together, then what people are going to see as the witness is you can take it fully authoritative, but you don't have to as long as you're with us. He's saying, but then you're compromised. He goes, somehow you have to have confrontation. You have to separate. This is what people need. Otherwise, 
we just become Christians that support cultural values rather than something distinct that God has given us. Um, I remember recently a, a dear friend of mine, uh, a priest, and he felt a bit flummoxed and he said, does the stand not, does the church not stand for anything? Are we not distinct in any way? Cause this church has conceded on yet another thing. And there's these, uh, there was these interviews with these people who aren't Christians, but they're, uh, and they kind of fit into this kind of uh, the Jordan Peterson atheists who want religion and they want Christianity. But uh, Niall Ferguson, uh, he says, I know I can't achieve religious faith, but I do think we should go to church. We don't have, I don't think, an evolved ethical system. I don't buy the idea that evolution alone gets us to be moral. It can modify modify behavior, but there's just too much evidence that in the raw, when the constraints of civilization fall away, we behave in the most savage way to one another. I'm a big believer that with the inherited wisdom of a two millennia old religion, we've got a pretty good framework to work with. But that means you have to believe it. Right? Christianity can't just be placebo effect. And then Douglas Murray says, my fear is that the church is not doing what so many of us on the outside want it to do, which is preaching its gospel, asserting its truth and its claims. When one sees it falling into all the latest tropes, one thinks, well, that's another thing gone, just like absolutely everything else in the era. I'm a disappointed non-adherent. So there's people wanting the church to be distinct. And in fact... Uh, Schaefer's like, well, liberal churches have discovered that they they start accommodating to modern modernity and people find out that they get cultural values in the in the church there. But then they start finding they can get cultural values anywhere and they end up leaving and the liberal churches die. He goes, so why as evangelicals are we wanting to do the same thing when the liberals are, are starting to like wave the siren and say not wave the siren, <laughs> blare the siren and say, it's not working for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked on a, a through a denomination about looking for um, how people did pensions in the United Church was selling buildings just to keep paying their pensions because they had no new people coming. That was the only way for them to pay the pensions. I don't know if that's still the case. Okay, so no confrontation leaves us compromised. Hateful confrontation. Do you think this is the one? (laughs) No. Okay. So Schaefer really felt this personally because he was within a denomination of Presbyterianism. And it went through a split when he was there. He said, but at the time, people were discussing, and if you are a part of the Anglican Church, you will know how this feels. But there was a sense in Presbyterianism in the 40s saying, okay, well, I don't think that we can stay. We should leave. We should separate. But, oh, can we separate? No, we should separate. And then they're like, okay, let's go. And then some people went and other people were like, ah, I changed my mind. And then people felt betrayed, Schaefer said, and they started maligning each other. He goes, people started destroying fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because of their betrayal. And now they no longer talk to each other. Okay. He goes, this is hateful confrontation. Every time there's a, a difference of a disagreement, There's not even, it's just like cut off. I reject you. Don't you believe in the Bible even? 
and they can cut you off uh, if they think that you're wrong in any way. And I love, this is one of my favorite quotes in the book. Schaefer says, the practice of truth requires that a line be drawn between those who hold the historic view of scripture and the new weaker one. But this is not to say that those who hold this view are not often brothers and sisters in Christ, nor that we should not have loving personal relationships with them. Don't just divide into ugly parties. If you do, the world will see the ugliness, which will turn it off. Your children will see the ugliness and you will lose some of your sons and daughters. They will hear such harsh things from your lips against men who they know have been your friends that they will turn away from you. Don't throw your children away. Don't throw other people away by forgetting to observe by God's grace, the two principles simultaneously to show love and holiness. He has a passion Yes, we should divide. Yes, we should hold to the truth. But it doesn't mean we need to be hateful. In fact, he says it doesn't matter what they print in the press. Whatever kind of labels they throw at you and how hateful they are, you love them. The most liberal, lost person, you love them. Yes, draw the line, but love them. So that leads us to his third option, loving confrontation, which is the correct one, by the way. <laughs> and this is my last point. Okay, aren't you excited? okay loving confrontation this is how he describes it he says it means drawing a line and separating yourself from your fellow um, your fellow believer um, Christians your brothers and sisters but with tears you're heartbroken I don't want this relationship I wish we could commune together worship together but i have to draw a line we can still hang out we can still eat but i have to draw a line somewhere mm -hmm. um in fact schaefer hated doing debates he never did debates and they're like oh you should do a debate with this guy named bishop pike who was a liberal theologian and he says no i'm not going to do a debate but i will do a conversation and so he had all of the brie pray and they had a conversation and uh and he said, well, how can you believe in the resurrection? And Bishop Pike was like, well, it's just a feeling. But Bishop Pike was so impressed with Francis Schaeffer that he wanted to have dinner with him. And so they gathered together and they became and they had very, he said, I've never felt such appreciation and love. And he was suffering because his son had died by suicide. And the Schaeffer showed so much love, but they kept drawing the line. But they did it so with tears. Um, and so it, he says, it means lovingly marking visibly where that line falls. Lovingly showing that some are on the other side of that line. And making clear to everyone on both sides of the line what the consequences of this are. I think I saw a great example. It was really sad. <clears throat> But I thought it was a wonderful example of love and confrontation in Vancouver, um, a church called Artisan. I have friends that go to Artisan. They still go to Artisan, okay? So these are people that are near and dear to me. But uh, they had a statement where they were going to affirm gay marriage and the full inclusion of um, gay people into uh, all leadership. And 
the, the British Columbian uh, chapter of Mennonite Brethren said, we have to draw a line and we're so sad about this. But this is their state. This was a report that was written in a newspaper about how it went. And I just think it's an amazing example of love and confrontation. In a statement about the recommendation to release Artisan from fellowship, BCMB conference minister Rob Thiessen, <clears throat> noted leaders from BCMB, have met with Artisan pastoral staff and their leadership team over the past five years. Did you hear that? Over the mm -hmm. past five years. Mm -hmm. Encouraging them to teach and develop a ministry response to the LGBTQ issues from within the theological framework of our NB Confession of Faith. After reviewing the church's um, statement on LGBTQ welcome and inclusion, the BCMB Pastoral Ministries Committee, Executive Board, and the Canadian Conference of Mennonite Brethren Church's National Faith and Life Director agreed the church's stated commitment to celebrate and perform gay marriages places them in conflict with the Mennonite Brethren Confessions of Faith. So their statement puts them in conflict. BCMB and the wider CCMBC community are deeply saddened to see artisan choose this path. The statement goes on to say, we have expressed to them that although we share their deep desire to reach the LGBTQ community, we do not believe that their approach is in line with the gospel and the teachings of scripture. Our prayer remains that they would repent of this decision. Hmm. This didn't mean that they ended relationship, personal relationship, <clears throat> but they ended an ecclesial relationship mm -hmm. and it was heartbreaking. Hmm. <clears throat> but if we don't draw a line in, these, in the sand or um, somewhere, where do we draw a line? But Schaefer's like, if you don't draw a line here, then you don't draw a line there. And then you don't draw a line there. <clears throat> and so I don't want you to forget the whole point of what Schaefer's fighting for in the great evangelical disaster is that he has a passionate love for people. He has a passionate love for society and says that it can't be my oratory or my intelligence. It's got to be the gift that God's given us, his word that points us to Jesus. But in the full authority of this foundation, doesn't just point us toward Jesus in salvation, but for our whole life to be structured around him so that we might be blessed and that culture might be blessed. This is to bring cultural blessings. That's, and so he's sad and with tears at dividing because he goes, you're compromising the blessings mm -hmm. that this is to give the transformation people are to experience. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so do we really believe that we're in a spiritual battle? Do we really believe that people around us in our society need transformation? What will be our foundation when we do speak? When people come and ask us questions, where is our authority, really? <clears throat> this is where I end. Schaefer says, God's word will never pass away, but looking back to the Old Testament and since the time of Christ, with tears, we must say, that because of a lack of fortitude and faithfulness on the part of God's people, God's word has many times been allowed to be bent, to conform to the surrounding, passing, changing culture of that moment, 
rather than to stand as the inerrant word of God, judging the form of the world spirit and the surrounding culture of that moment. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, may our children and grandchildren not say that such can be said about us. So this is where I end. Okay, this is a time for discussion. Um, Clark, I really like that. Okay, wonderful lecture. Thank you. So much. I, I, I do really like that you. Um, I took that as a compliment, by the yeah. way. Lots of information. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did really like that, um, that you brought in the uh, practical. Um, the practical application of all of this, and that Schaefer did, um, yeah, also believe very much in the practical. Yeah, in the practical. Mm. And I think he said something about, um, sorry, lost my train. That's okay. But there was, you might have to come back to me. Okay. Yeah, I mean, one thing I will say is that, uh, yeah, if this is over all of life, then it needs to be imminently practical. Do you remember what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That the uh, like the whole accepting the the word of God as mm. uh, will also affect the way that we deliver the gospel. I think that, mm. that that might be an interpretation of what you said, but that's. Yeah, that's a really good connection that mm -hmm. uh, to believe in the internet word actually impacts how we live out the gospel, not just believe the gospel, but live it out. Um, because it does, I mean, it, it puts it on shady ground or shadowy ground if we don't believe that, you know, in Adam, we all die, that we've inherited sin, mm -hmm. and that in Christ, like, um, that we really believe that we are um, not just moved to believe that Jesus come from this line and is who he says, but that if God can speak in history faithfully, then God can speak in our present moment, in our present lives. If he's mm -hmm. truly God over time and space, mm -hmm. then he should be able to be Lord over our time and space mm -hmm. as we trust him. And that if Jesus can be, and if God can provide this providentially this miraculous book and he also can provide in us the truth uh from this book in us if that makes sense well, thanks yes we have a question from greg online greg you can end it yourself hi clark hey greg <laughs> good talk I was hoping you were going to be here <laughs> I, you know, I certainly see that, you know, that we have this authority from the Bible, but it's how we get that authority. I think maybe I sort of differed with Schaefer. Um, I do believe that God speaks to us through all of the scriptures, you know, uh, regardless that God has a message through all of it. But uh, John, in the Gospel of John, chapter one, uh, John says that the word became flesh, obviously meaning Jesus. Yes. And, he, you know, put it this way, he didn't say it became a book. You know, he said it became, the word became flesh. So I think that to understand the Bible, 
we have to do it through the lens of Jesus. You know, I mean, like that old, you know, what would Jesus do to those old bracelets and that? Um, so, you know, when we look at things like, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the Old Testament saying, you know, show them no mercy. God had, having God say, show them no mercy and or the, the slaughter of um, men, women, children, even specifies infants in all life. And then you try and rationalize that with, you know, Jesus saying, you know, love your enemies and, and how Jesus dealt with the Romans in his time saying, you know, saying we were to love the Romans and the weapons, the weapons that we have is the sword of love, you know, um, that I, I can't reconcile uh, those two things. Um, so, you know, or the, or the stoning of some poor schmuck for picking up firewood on the Sabbath, uh, you know, and God saying, well, he should be stoned to death. And whereas you have, you know, Jesus saying with the woman caught, caught in adultery, that, you know, he was, who was out without sin cast the first stone. So, in, but I will I add, to that, that in order to understand Jesus, we need the new, the new Old Testament, because Jesus is constantly quoting the Old Testament scriptures, and and referring to them. Um, when you talk about Paul, uh, talking about a literal Adam, how many how many services or sermons have you heard, and wouldn't have a problem with someone saying, you know, treating the uh, parable, parable of the Good Samaritan or the or, or any of the parables for that matter, as if they're real events. I mean, Jesus never said that this actually happened. It's telling a story to get across a greater truth. And I think that we can get, I mean, there's tremendous truths, you know, for instance, in the Genesis accounts. It, in a sense, it doesn't, does it really matter whether that be literal or uh, a, a true mythology, if you like? Because there's tremendous truths in there about the learning of good and evil and so on and, and so forth, being created in the image of God. Uh, okay. I have no problem with a lot of my miracles. Plate there. I have no problem with the resurrection. Thanks, you put a lot of my plate there. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Sorry. But I was so hoping you were going to be here because we've had these conversations before. Yeah. Um, and I love having these conversations with you. Um, it, it's loving confrontation. <laughs> yes yes um yeah and you know within loving confrontation you know to kind of speak meta about this moment uh it's that we have to reason together but in the end we have to say okay we have to reason in the scriptures together so as they tried to come to understand who jesus was they went to the scriptures to understand who he was. Like you said, the Old Testament, not only Jesus referred to it, but they had to go to the scriptures and it was all in play, right? All in play. But, you know, you said, well, the word became flesh, not a book. But God's redemptive acts were always given an interpretation as well. Does that make you understand what I mean by that? Is that uh -huh. so in our understanding, so for Jesus, so when Jesus came, because you said we need Jesus to understand the Bible, but we need the Bible to understand Jesus. Otherwise, we have a Jesus of, of our ideals, 
interpreting the Bible toward those ideals rather than saying, and so Jesus trusted the scriptures because the scriptures point and he continually said, you know, it is said of me, it's said of me, it's said of me. And so he has entire trust that the scriptures will stand and bear witness to who he is and what his identity is and that it would explain all that they needed to know. And so the New Testament is really an interpretation of the old in light of Jesus's coming. Well, and, G- and Jesus, in many cases, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, corrected the Old Testament scriptures. You know, how many times it, he did not it, correct it, it, you, you have heard it said, which is in reference to what was in the, what was in the uh, Hebrew scriptures. Right. So when he so let me clarify that. So when he says you have heard it said, right? <coughs> What he's doing is he's taking these passages and how they were applied, and they were applying it in a very legalistic way, right? Just as Satan is misusing the the passage, it's not that that Satan was incorrect about the passage, but he was using it in a wrong way. And so Jesus is not saying that the law that you're referring to is wrong. He's saying you're not applying it to the very heart level. You're trying to use it to your advantage, into your self-righteousness, not to the love of your neighbor, not to the love of God. And so he would say, um, uh, you, know, you, have, sir, you have said, you know, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that even if you lust with your eyes, then you have already committed adultery in your heart. So he's not saying that the law is wrong. He's saying that they're misapplying it to their life. And I would say that happens to us as Christians. We often want to use the Bible, and we want to use it in a, such a way that gives us a sense of a sacred life, a, a, um, a life, but, but we don't want to be obedient where we need to be obedient to the full extent of what Scripture is calling us to, because that makes us uncomfortable. Um, in fact, uh, Schaefer says obedience is the watershed of, um, is also the watershed of, um, of the Christian faith. He goes, you can be right in thinking about all the Bible, but if you don't obey it, then you don't really know it. But, and Jesus did say that, you know, that all the law and the prophets are based on the law of love. No, it you says know, they all hang on him. They, they all hang on, on love of God and love of neighbor. And that's all the law oh, hangs on that. He said, what is the greatest? Thing? Well, yes, uh, that is true. But we need to understand what he means by that. Because if we take the love of God and the love of neighbor, that is true. That is the summary. And that's even like uh, said later in the New Testament, one of the letters. But, um, but it's not loving to, uh, to say, um, to declare something korban. You know, and it's like they had this legal right where they could kind of vouchsafe their money and basically not give it to their parents. And because it was made sacred, it was that they were um, they were using the law not to love. So the law can be used not to love and the Bible can be used to hate. But that doesn't mean that that's its message. But at the same time, we have to say, well, what does all that love mean? Because even in John's letter where he says God is love, he also says God is light. And we often think of that in like a Unitarian sense or this very mystical sense that uh, God is light is just kind of like warm globe. But actually, God is light means God is judge. He will expose. We will stand before him fully 
transparent. And so God's holiness is never without his love and his love is never without his holiness. And so, uh, and, and furthermore, I mean, you're talking about Jesus saying, blessed are the peacemakers. That's true. But he also says, I did not bring peace, but a sword. So are those contradictions or is there something more complex going on? Jesus. I was going to say that thing where he brings the sword and not peace. It's like, you know, for instance, this whole COVID thing, you know, where people, there were people on both sides and it really divided people. His message of of nonviolence against the Romans, of, 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 of revolution that was based on the weapon of love as opposed to the, the actual physical sword uh, was going to divide people. You know, it was going to divide their thoughts. I mean, yeah. and you, you went, you, just like we saw in the whole COVID thing, it's because it's such a good example of what Jesus was talking about there. We have brother against brother. I mean, I know cases the brothers wouldn't speak to each other yeah. because they were on either side of this issue. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's what Jesus is saying there. We talk about bringing a sword. He's not talking about bringing an actual physical sword. So you're saying it was a prophecy about those who live by the sword die by the sword. Are you saying that it was a prophecy about COVID? (laughs) I'm sorry, what? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. I can't. I can't repeat my joke three times. (laughs) Uh, Take my hearing. But you know, I remember it was uh, George Bernard Shaw. He he was against Christianity in many ways, and uh, see you, Molly. But um, he said that the blood of the Old Testament is worsened in the New Testament because Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else, about those thrown out of the wedding banquet. Why is Jesus telling those stories? Why does Jesus say he himself is coming back to divide between the goats and the sheep, that the Son of Man will judge? And so, and when he says that he will come and judge, he, he says that there will be a judgment. I mean, there's different, I'm not saying that this makes it all clear and easy. And sometimes I like to muddy it up further. It's not that we can simply say that God in the Old Testament had no love. There was a constant grief and yearning and suffering his people, calling them back, um, calling for just scales, calling for, um, you know, Biblical writings on the immigrants, on the poor, on just land use laws, all comes in the Old Testament. God is very so. So, so, so the uh, laws on love. I mean, even Leviticus basically see the golden rule, or roughly equating to it, mm-hmm. in, in Leviticus, the law of love was there. You know, right, right that early on. I'll, you know, I'll, so I mean, it's, it's all there, there are some other questions. Yeah, I got to shut up. But I will say, no, no, you have another weeks, okay? You have more weeks. But I do want to say that the New Testament itself isn't, we shouldn't just simplify it as love. But there's preaching about hell. Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, even the um, Revelation talking about uh, the judgment by fire. Peter talks about judgment of wickedness. Paul talks about judging people. They didn't see this as antithetical to love. They didn't see this as contradictory to love. They saw it as hand um, um, coalescing. And so, uh, and this is the last thing I'm going to say before I turn to someone else. But I like what Schaefer said. He goes, we need to desire a purity of love with a pure, wait, we need to desire, we should have a love for purity with a pure love. We should have a love for purity with a pure love. 
which is that combination of holiness and love. And we see that ultimately in the cross. Okay. So we'll, we'll have to go back to you, Greg, later. Sorry. So Errol and then Nathan. Yes. Uh, in respect to loving confrontation, mm -hmm. most of the examples that we heard tonight were of loving confrontation within the broader church. Mm -hmm. But Schaefer clearly is wanting confrontation with society as well. Yes. But does he, in his book, go into more detail about how the church or Christian individuals confront society? Yeah, so, so the question is, is that we're talking about loving confrontation and that Jesus, I mean, sorry, <laughs> well, Schaefer. <laughs> I sure hope that's not a Freudian slip, right? Uh, it's, um, anyway, so, but Schaefer is saying that it's not just about confrontation among Christians and among churches, but the Christian confronting society. And yes, it is. And because he's wanting to say, um, because he, he was called a fundamentalist and he tried to say, I'm not, uh, but he was saying people say those words because it's just a quick way of dismissing what someone's saying. And we hear that in today's discussion, right? Uh, people throw out labels to stop the conversation. Uh, and yes, I mean, and so he publicly uh, called for, um, uh, you know, a lot of people credit Schaefer for bringing the evangelical mind to abortion. It was a Catholic issue. Now, we may feel conflicted. I don't know about all that. And I know there's a lot of pol ugly politicization around that. Um, but you have to remember how he spoke about love and confrontation. Uh, but, but he did speak. And he was like, this is the path. Where, what are we doing with human life? And if we don't care about the unborn, what's going to happen to the elderly? What's going to happen to the disabled? What's going to be um, with the mentally unwell? He was very concerned. <laughs> about the manipulation of society and particularly around human life. And so he did speak about these issues. And so how shall we then live is a whole study of the history from uh, Greece and Rome uh, through the lens of the early church and through other events saying, where are we now? And when we've turned to the Bible, society has been blessed. And when it's, when it is turned away, it has gone badly. And in fact, not many people know this, that he, he did that series in response of Kenneth Clark's um, series called Civilizations. And if you look at it, he ends with a materialistic explanation, a naturalistic explanation. And, and it's human reason that has given us all the gifts of society. He's like, no. And so he's actually confronting with the Bible hmm. and saying all the blessings that you've received is because of the Bible. Um, but we need to be careful because we don't want to be like this. You know, I think that Labrie is a good example. It's not the only example. It's the one I know. But people come here who um, we have many gay people come. We have had trans, non-binary questioning people come. We've had lots of atheists come. We have lots of people who are angry at the church and hurt. And I don't just try to be a nice guy with a side hug. I'm like, no, oh, let's, there's something here. And it may not be something that they can come to directly. But it's, it's, it's in my heart, it's in my mind as I'm explaining, contending for them, loving them, wanting to give them a framework for meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yes, you're right. That's loving confrontation. 
is where are your ideas in your life taking you? Where is this pursuit of identity taking you? Where is it taking society? Where is it taking institutions? Let's let's really discuss here and let's not leave. Let's let's eat together. Let's let's joke together. Let's be with together. Um, be with one another. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I think one of the beauties of Labrie is welcoming people through acts of hospitality and engaging them at the very level of their minds and their hearts with the trust that God has something to say. So so yeah. So at society, but also. So at society at the individual level. So would Schaefer say that each one of us as Christians should be prepared to engage in loving confrontation? Every Christian should be prepared for loving confrontation. I mean, Peter says the same thing. Mm -hmm. Be prepared to give the hope Mm -hmm. to those who ask. Well, he's talking to people who are embattled. And he goes, when you are embattled and yet you still don't lose hope, you don't lose your trust in Jesus, people are going to say, why? How? And you can say, I have something that's more stable than the rise and fall of nations. Right? Sorry, one second. Yeah, thanks so much. But I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit to biblical literary genres mm. and how they might each individually convey truth, but in ways that require interpretation or require understanding of the genre specifically like apocalyptic literature which would have a lot of things that if you were to take at face value and believe there are dragons or believe there are um, trumpets or believe there are things that speaks about um, these images how much of that is literal or should be taken face value or is there deeper truths that are conveyed and does it undermine validity of that book if we don't take it literally very good question um yeah so i love literary interpretation of scripture but i also know that it can be misused uh rhetorical criticism can be useful it can also be misused so these these uh tools and how we we reflect on um history and genre expression all these things are important. But uh, one, I would say you, you need to have comparative genre. Like, okay, is this a poem? Well, we see parallelism. We see, uh, we see um, that the Psalms use is in Hebrew letters, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, okay, this is an acrostic. This is a reflection. Um, and it, it has certain maybe allusions. And so what I'm doing is saying, okay, and I see other genres have it. It's like, oh, other ancient poetry is like this too. Okay. Oh, okay. This is most likely a poem, right? Uh, but I also want to see that it's distinct from these other cultures because we believe that God is communicating through it, that God's intended this. Uh, and so it's like, the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David when he said of Jesus, right? Um, I also think that they had that. I don't know if we always have that ability. I think that they had an authoritative ability to see in the scriptures that not only the Holy Spirit was saying that, but the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to interpret. But anyway, just kind of comparative genre is this like, um, and this is what makes Genesis so quizzical because 
it it has a lot of the earmarks of ancient cosmologies, lots of phraseologies and illusions, but it's unique in not only how God is portrayed and how humanity is portrayed, but also that there is historical reference, you know, continually, and that it actually blends into Abraham much more seamlessly than we would like. You know, we would like a hard break. And the genealogies kind of keep it up. And so what we're doing is we're trying to not just say, oh, this is the genre because it's so similar, like the ancient cosmologists. Like, we need to listen to the text within itself. We can see genre and maybe even a blend of genre, like in Revelation, which I can talk about in a minute. But you, you can see a blend of genre, but it's, it's treated as history. <clears throat> it's also treated, um, but it's also similar to an ancient cosmology. So let's just not lump it all into ancient cosmology and just try to read the text as it wants to be written. Uh, I mean, read. Uh, and so it's like, okay, the book is assuming this is historical. So I need to take it by faith that this is historical. Now, how do I work that out? But we're also not Israelite people from 2000 years ago who are reading it as the intended audience. So that's a hard thing to do. But the intended part. audience, you know, uh, that's an interesting point because, um, yes, they were the intended audience, but they weren't the only intended audience because God spoke about Judas. And it's like, don't you know, like Paul would say, don't you know that this is written about you? You're just like your parents. It's like, wow, that was a couple thousand years ago in the wilderness. But he's applying it. You know, and he's not just applying it typologically. He's applying it in a sense of saying there's a spiritual heritage. Uh, and Jesus applying it to himself, you know, not just. Uh, and so I like the term uh, that prophecy is not for is not simply foretelling it's forth telling, which means it can be said multiple times in different situations. And in the Bible is that way, you know, like, uh, but coming to like apocalyptic literature, I mean, Revelation is a very confusing one because everyone treats it like it's like a numbers game. And I don't buy into that. But, uh, but you can see that it's very similar to like Baruch and Esdras, like all these other ancient apocalyptic works. And then you see similarities with some of Isaiah, but Daniel, Ezekiel, they're using up, um, apocalyptic language to express something. And so it's not saying that there's a literal dragon, but, but that dragon does represent like lions represent political enemies, you know? Um, but I don't want to limit that the Bible can only say the, these things. I just want to say, I want to be sensitive to genre, but ask, is this, but genre doesn't totally limit because it's God's word, it can it can use the genre, but transcend the genre. So with poetry, David, I mean, uh, Psalm 22, the person is expressing their anguish and lament before God. And Jesus is like, hey, that's that's me. Right. And so it applies to both of them. God has used it, but transcended it. Uh, so that's what that's the kind of way I'm thinking about literary genre. You want to be respectable of it the history. And so when you look at Mark compared to Matthew, it's like, what's the intended audience? Why does Matthew construct it in this way, as opposed to how Mark constructs it? And then that can help you. But you also say, but why did God give us two books? 
Well, then it transcends just one one. And so it's like, well, maybe God gave us four accounts for a particular reason. Not just that there's we're lucky just to have four different accounts and now we have to figure out how to harmonize them. But no, there are four distinct accounts that as a collection gives us something that transcends just the genre or the intended audience. You had a question? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so it seems like uh, Schaefer's basic argument is that there's an authority crisis in culture. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go with human autonomy rather than biblical authority, then it kind of devolves into chaos. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can kind of slippery slope down the watershed um, if we make these small concessions, mm -hmm. even in like historical or scientific matters. Yep. Um, and then you contrasted that with the view of like, uh, forget his name, but that kind of view that uh, God was accommodating to the understanding or the ancient cosmology, the yeah. three-tiered universe, um, but ne nevertheless revealing himself through that. Um, whereas Schaefer would say, well, we need a strong factual inerrancy. Uh, otherwise, um, it kind of just degenerates and mm -hmm. you get into this slippery slope. Um, I, I guess my question is, uh, and, and you mentioned that not everybody goes down that slope, right? Uh, even people who accept divine accommodation. Um, but I wonder, is the factual inerrancy, uh, is putting that, uh, too much emphasis on that, actually making faith more fragile for people uh, mm -hmm. who go into biology departments, for example, mm -hmm. and is maybe a better kind of extra support <laughs> mm -hmm. to, um keep us uh you know within the rule of faith is that maybe tradition the consensus of the church throughout history um i know that many catholics for instance um believe uh in evolution uh you know the church officially puts a stamp of approval on that and yet they're not taking the same at least uh, apart from germany they're not taking the same uh uh route as for example the anglican church of canada um so i'm just yeah maybe you can say something about that <laughs> okay let me see if i um i love that question it's very lovely and let me see if i can answer it um helpfully is that it depends on what we mean by accommodation god accommodated you remember i said there's one thing to say babies are from storks and babies are from little part you know and also it depends on what we mean by factual inerrancy because I said it doesn't have to be literal, uh, like a wooden interpretation. So Schaefer would not be insensitive to trying to understand within the text. So um, so lovely to have you, Tim. Thank you for having me. I'll be yeah. back. Um, so, for example, he would say, you know, to say a day within the Genesis story itself can be an age in Abraham's day. So he's wanting to be sensitive to the authorship of Genesis. And uh, also, you know, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. So does this help us understand that maybe how Genesis is speaking? So if we talk about factual inerrancy as saying it says day, that's a modern equivalent to 24 hours. Uh, is that factual er inerrancy? Um, I would say no. Uh, I have to say, as someone who believes in the supernatural, is it 
possible for God to create in six 24-hour days? Absolutely. He could create in one second, right? So why is it delivered to us in six days um, as, as, the, as the narrative? And so we have to ask, what is intended by that narrative? Um, and like I said, you have to look at factual clues like, or clues. Is it being treated as history? And, and is it being treated as figurative within a historical account? You know, things like that. And it is unique. Like the, um, it is unique in how it expresses these, this very misty origins, right? And so if we want to just kind of like think that Genesis 1 through 3 is, and we see a painting, a Renaissance painting of Adam and Eve in the garden, and we think that's that, we need to be careful, you know? I mean, they were living 900 years, <laughs> uh, which is a really long time. But it's like, well, is that, is that, are the numbers trying to portray something that is factual? It seems like it, because why would you say 926 when you could just say, a hundred, you know, uh, but nevertheless, it depends on what we mean by factual inerrancy. Uh, another thing I want to add, and so um, um, another thing I want to add is this, he talked about um, limits and he said that there's cliffs and circles. He goes, there's a circle. He goes, some people treat doctrine as a dot. And it's like, is it God's sovereignty or human freedom? Which one is it? And he goes, and sometimes we try to secure it so much that we fall off the cliff. And we fall off the cliff saying, no, God controls everything. And human freedom is nothing. Or we can back up and say, ooh, that's so scary and so demeaning and so dehumanizing. I believe that human freedom and then God's sovereignty is not in control. So he's saying there has to be a circle. that it holds The circle is the paradox. And we have to live within that paradox and not knowing exactly how to like explain it outside of living in that paradox. So I'm just trying to give you an explanation of how he tries to deal with his interpretation of, of an infallible Bible. Now, when you have, we've had several people who've lost their faith because they've gone and studied geology, biology, genetics. Though, interestingly, we have a, a a lovely Japanese man who comes over from, they fly him over from Japan and he studies particle physics at UBC. And he's a strong creationist. Mm -hmm. He understands all this science. And so I'm always amazed. I'm just like, I don't know the science. I read Francis Collins and other people like that. I was like, well, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, but people, sometimes when they hear it for the first time, they're like, Bible's not true. There's all these proofs. Bible's not true. Rather than saying, okay, what is the Bible claiming? And how am I to reconcile this? Um, you know, and also how infallible is human knowledge around scientific discoveries? Because when Schaefer was around, there wasn't the Human Genome Project. It was the indisputable fossil record. But recently I watched something on DNA and like, DNA secures what was um, disputable about the fossil record, you know? And it's just like, how much confidence do we put in current science? I think that we can say we can put some confidence. God's made us rational. God's made the world orderly. But, and so we shouldn't bury our head in the sand and say, well, and you can fall off the cliff and say, well, why are there fossils under the mountain? Well, God just wants to know if you believed them or not. 
is to deceive the um, unfaithful. <laughs> you know, like, okay, you just fell off the cliff saying that God is trying to deceive you. And it's like, and so Shaver's like, no, no, no. We need to take these things seriously. But are we interpreting it fully correctly? It's something, especially when there's uh, science is saying, well, it seems like 97% of reality is undiscoverable because of dark matter. It's like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and in addition to that, it's like, and the last thing I want to say is that if God, you know, because God says, uh, for instance, there's there's light, there's light before sun and moon. How can that happen? It doesn't happen scientifically, right? Or at least as far as I know. But in Revelation, when it describes heaven, it says there will be no sun because God will be our light. So what I want to say is that God can do something. We, we judge God by what he's done and what we observe, not what, what he says he has done or can do. Because resurrection is not empirically verifiable um, in a uniform, uh, according to uniform laws, uniformitarianism. Is that right? Yeah. You know that word? Yeah. Uh, when it's that uniformitary, um, uni uniformity of laws, like laws never change, what has always, what is, has always been. Well, the Christian can say, well, maybe not. Maybe things did change. God says that people got younger. There was a there was a massive flood, um, and God's going to be our light, and there's going to be no sun. So, I don't want to dig my I don't want to put my head in the sand, but I want to say, well, maybe I need more explanations than just the naturalistic ones, and even the naturalistic ones I can't put all my confidence in, but I can put some confidence in. Does that help? No. I just think it gives people confidence to say, let's let's find out what it's all saying rather than just listening to one geneticist and saying, okay, I give up faith. It's like someone um, learned, uh, my colleague, in fact, he said, um, I had, I, I lost my faith in Bible college because, um, or at least a serious crisis, because they said there was humor, human authorship to the Bible. And he was just like, what? No, it has to be God's word. If there's any human element, then it's all wrong. It took him time before he had to figure out, oh, how does that actually work out in this mystery of the Holy Spirit speaks through the mouth of David with David's personality and circumstance? It's, it's not an easy solution, but it's the one that we trust the Bible and try to work within the bounds of what it says. And so, um, so yeah. Thank you. Julie? Oh, um, oh, Naomi has a question first. Well, um, those who want to go can go, and those who want who would to want stay. to go? <laughs> <laughs> those who yes, if you want to go, if you need to go, you can pretend you need to go if you want to go. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll just do it. Let's just say, um, what time is it? Nine fifteen. Nine fifteen. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> let's just say fifteen minutes max. Okay, Naomi. This Thanks might, for waiting. Yeah, no problem. This might be a dumb question, but I was just wondering if you could speak to when you're talking about those passages from the New Testament, talking about scripture being God breathed mm. and how that works when like the New Testament wasn't necessarily formed at those times when they were being those like, words were being written, like they weren't canonized. So how does that sort of I don't know extend over what that yeah, there's a great book by FF Bruce called New Testament Documents. 
uh, just if you want a, an academic and, and it's, it's pretty, it's academic, but also um, it's well done and it's also really small. But um, it's, it's, hard to at, it's hard to answer the question, how aware were they? Because sometimes the prophets were aware, thus saith the Lord. But sometimes they weren't aware, right? Who knows if uh, whoever wrote the book of Samuel, was he aware that he was writing scripture? Uh, and so it's hard to know if they knew that they were actually writing scripture to be canonized. We can't answer that. But what we can know is that they knew that they had the authority to proclaim what the Spirit was saying, what the Lord was saying. So I've never walked around and said, the Lord says, you know, you should marry me. Like, because I'm not telling the truth, right? But it's like, they knew the Lord, or the Lord says that uh, there's going to be the end of the world you know, in 1844, they were wrong. Um, and so I think that there's a presumption, but there was not a presumption from Paul. He's like, actually, I've been given the word from, I've been commissioned by Jesus. I have the word of truth. And so even them using the word word is associating with scripture. Um, and, and the documents started being passed around, you know, and the first documents were Paul's letters. Those were the earliest before. So there were no gospel accounts when Paul's letters were making it to the churches. So the first introduction to Jesus was through Paul's letters, right? Which is kind of different. We, we don't often think about that, but they were collected and Luke's like, well, maybe let's have a fuller account. I mean, I don't know if Luke knew that he was writing canonized scripture. He's like, I just want to write something down orderly but these books um so they knew that they had some people knew they had an authority i'm not sure if all of them did and then at a certain point because there was like the apocalypse of peter and the dedeke and first clement and all these but the church never recognized those as authoritative they thought them useful and helpful but they're like but these are the books that are from god so there was an early witness, and even when the canon was finally canonized, it was it was actually the testimony of the early church all around the world that they all held in common the same books, or almost all the same books. So it's not like a few a few men chose these books because they liked them the most, and they were trying to like be they're trying to quiet the Gnostic Christians, you know, or the Gnostic spiritualists, which is a theory. Um, but rather, there was a testimony among Christian faithful that held the common books. But how aware they were, we don't know. And that's not an easy question. <laughs> that's not done. Yeah, thanks, Clark. Um, I was thinking about that you know, analogy with the, the snow melting and kind of going one way and ending up thousands of miles in a different place than the other. And just kind of reflecting on how. Yeah, or it may reminds me of different quotes like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a slippery slope or you give an inch and it'll take a mile and just maybe doesn't really promote um, a culture of being able to ask questions mm. or maybe can create a fear that if I do ask a question or if I do land on a point slightly different, then all of a sudden I'm going to end up like Gungor saying that Buddha is Christ and right. you know, these sort of things. And it just, yeah, I, I don't really feel like that's the culture maybe we're wanting to create that like if you ask a single question, like it just 
causes you to go off the slope and now you're tumbling and it's an avalanche and all of a sudden. So can you speak to that a bit? Yeah. Thank you yeah. for asking that. Cause that's, that's uh, important for me to clarify because I do know that, uh, you know, like fundamentalists are often blamed, like, like I said, and like I was, I was saying that if you agree with 25 out of 26 things, but you, you, you mess that one thing, you're out, mm. you know, and, and people are just like, can't believe you even asked that question. Uh, and so I do think that there is a lot of fear from the type of hatred or um, oppression that people have experienced in the Christian church from asking questions. Um, there was one woman that came to us and said um, she was a very intelligent person. And uh, I said, why don't you ever speak at discussions? Like, you're so smart. And we're together. You're just like, boom, 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 boom. And then in this lunch discussion, and she said, um, oh, no, I said, why don't you ever talk in discussion? And she said, she started crying and she goes, I was in a Bible study. And I said, how do we really know that Jesus is God? Which is a great question. And, I, and that was a home run question. If these people really knew their Bible, but they're like, oh, I can't believe you're asking that. I thought you were a Christian. And she goes, and I knew then that I was no longer going to be a shit disturber. And so people are very sensitive about asking questions. Uh, and like, like I said, that loving confrontation was five years of engaging. Like, well, how do you see this? Why do you see this? And so it wasn't just like slam, you're wrong, right? It's trying to work it through. And, uh, and so I do think that we have to give charity. Charity in love toward people's questions. And he, like even Schaefer says, you have to love even the one with whom you disagree, right? And so if he's saying, if I have to separate from with tears, that means there's a relationship. There's a, a deep love and affection for the person. So I think that's what's lacking is the affection and the charity we, um, we don't show when people are asking those questions. And so like, I, I mean, uh, I don't think I ever said that ends in Lamoureux or like I said, I... I I take them seriously, their Christian commitment, their sincerity. Um, I'm not being derogatory toward them. And when they say these things, I'm like, huh, I wonder if that's true. Can it be an ancient vessel? Hmm. And I think about it. And I, I have people asking me questions all the time, and I sit with it, and I really want to know their questions. I don't like the whole idea of the answer man, you know, Hank Canegraaff. I'm not saying Hank Canegraaff's a bad guy. <laughs> But I'm just saying just that idea is like chapter and verse, chapter and verse, chapter and verse. That's that kind of literalistic answer. That's not, that's not a good application of the Bible. It's to invite the person as a whole person in and to engage them in their questions with, with trust and with love. So thank you for making that point. It's not to say, well, but because like Schaefer said, we have to lovingly say this is where those consequences fall. And so I've had people come and I'm like, you know, if you make this concession, like, and I don't say that, I don't, I don't even talk like that, but I'm just, like, <laughs> I'm like, well, well, what does that mean for your life? Well, what do you think about this? You know, and this might be over weeks. What about this passage? Um, well, how do you, how do you read that? And, and I just listen to them and want to dialogue with them. I really want to wrestle 
with people's hearts as they ask these questions rather than just dismiss them. And even those who go, go on to the different side, I can still love them and we can have our differences. You know, Greg and I, we have our differences. You know, I'm right, he's wrong, it's hard. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but you know, Greg and I have built a lot of trust. Right? And, and I don't think that Greg doubts that I love him and that I don't doubt that um, he loves me. Um, when you have that, then you can wrestle together. But it is something that you don't want to, uh, I think that, especially when someone, um, and I feel that you've had this experience, I would say that when people have had those experiences, I know people who've been kicked out of their homes uh, because they've disagreed, literally on the streets. I'm going to be very sensitive to that. And, and I'm not going to push hard, you know? Because ultimately, I'm not the spirit. And so I just want to entrust them with the spirit. And uh, Leslie Newbigin said, don't bring God to people. But when you come to people, ask, where is God at work? That's very helpful to me. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to follow. Mm-hmm. Did you want to say anything else? Okay. Thank you for asking them. Yeah.